Well, it's a privilege now uh, to begin a new series that I hope will be really helpful to us. Not just something we hear when we come to church, but something that we can take home and really practice that will make a difference in our, in our lives. And that's what we're talking about prayer. When we first moved here almost four years ago now, Avery had just turned six and we had a, a room where we had a chair, and my intention for it didn't materialize. My intention for it was this chair was going to be a place of prayer. And we could call it the prayer chair or something like that and, and sit there, and, and everybody would leave you alone, and you pray there. And I, I had Avery. She was six years old. Part of this, I think, her response is just her personality. Part of it's just the honesty of six-year-old. But I told her, I said, well, this is our prayer chair. Anybody can come here and pray and nobody will bother you. You need to sit here and pray. And she said, oh, can, can we like read things? And I said, well, you can read the Bible or, or things like that. And, and she thought about it and she said, I don't think I'm going to be spending much time in this chair. <laughs> <laughs> How many of us, if we are honest, would have to say we're not really intending to pray very much? And maybe the only reason we're not saying it is we just don't have the honesty with ourselves or with others to admit it like a child does. But there's good news. There's good news for all of us today. We can learn to pray. Even now, no matter how old you are, we can learn to pray. And in fact, uh, just join me right now to, to pray as we open this, this talk. Lord, we join with the disciples long ago. And we say, teach us to pray. Now and in the coming weeks, in the coming months, teach us to pray. In your name, amen. Isn't it interesting that, and this is not in our passage today, but in, in Luke chapter 11, I believe, Jesus' disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't come to him and say, Lord, teach us to preach. They didn't say, teach us to lead. They said, teach us to pray. And that's instructive for us. There's a priority to prayer in the lives we're living, in the ministry we're engaging in. Have you ever noticed that in Acts chapter 6, the apostles say, we must give ourselves. They're looking, out for, looking for people to, to serve uh, and, and take care of needs among their community. And they say, we must give ourselves to prayer. I say, prayer first. We must give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And how much damage has been done to the church by people who have given themselves to the ministry who haven't given themselves to prayer? Because prayer is where we connect with God and ultimately all that we do is supposed to be about God and not about us and what He would do, not first what we would do. E. Stanley Jones says that it's something like uh, Jesus. If you look at Jesus, He ran away from the crowds to pray. And if you look at modern preachers, we run to the crowds and we don't pray. And then he says, and we don't have anything to give to the crowds because we haven't prayed. So we say today, Lord, teach us to pray. And would you join with me over the coming weeks? I have a lot of learning to do myself in this. So would you join with me in asking Jesus to teach us to pray and going on a journey into deeper and richer prayer and see what the Lord will give us in the coming weeks. The good news is he still teaches people. And he will teach us if we sincerely want to know how to pray. He will teach us. 
And we can take small steps. We don't have to be heroes and, and, and think suddenly we've got to turn into Mother Teresa and have her prayer life. <laughs> In fact, um, some of the great examples of prayer, those are special callings. We need to recognize that. Not everyone's called to, to go into solitude for, for weeks or months on end and spend six hours a day or eight hours a day in prayer. Some of those special callings that people have had, thank God for them, but that's not for everybody. And so you don't need to look at that and think, well, if I were really spiritual, I'd be able to do that. No, what we need to learn is how does God want us to pray given the life that he has given to us, but he does want us to pray deeply and regularly and significantly because we have a relationship with him and prayer is a central part of that relationship. So let's look at the prayer very briefly to introduce it. There it is, and we're starting today with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It divides up into uh, a God, if you want to call it God-focused part at the start, and a man-focused part, a human-focused part at the bottom. So the, the three requests at the top, let your name be hallowed, sanctified, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, and then these three, four at the bottom, give us, give us our needs, our, our daily bread, meet, meet our needs, forgive our sins, and keep us from temptation and from testing and from being overcome. So those are, we ask God to do something for his name and for his will, we ask God to take care of us. And we're going to work through these things over the next six or seven weeks or so. But before we dive into this prayer, I want to take you back into the context. I'll just leave that up there and you can, you can look at it. Take you back into the context of Matthew chapter 6 where we, where we get this prayer, where we're going to be reading it from. We can read it here or, or, or in, a, in Luke chapter 11 um, with some, some different language, I believe. But, but we'll be uh, today at least in, in Matthew 6. Starting back up in verse 5. Jesus says, and we're, we're going to look here at, at two different people, two different groups of people who are, who are doing it wrong, okay? And we're going to say, what distinguishes Christian prayer from hypocritical prayer, and what distinguishes it from pagan prayer? So he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, these people who are faking it. Don't be like them, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And here's the, here's the first thing we want to note about prayer. This, it's really about all of spiritual life. The goal is not to somehow make ourselves look good before people. The goal is not to seek human approval by how much we do it, by how eloquently we do it, by having a stage to do it. For, that's not the goal. And any any that's spiritual, anything that groups of people look at and say, oh, isn't that holy, isn't that good? It can be twisted to be about us, where people will look at us and say, well, look, oh, aren't they great? Look at that. And then you can start dropping lines about, well, this is when I pray. This is how much I pray. You can start giving hints to people. So they'll pick up on how you do it. And Jesus says very clearly, if that's, if that's your approach, you already have your reward. And that's a reward. To an extent, it is. People look at you and say, wow, look at him. Look at her. She prays a lot. She prays in a special way. That's, that's, uh, that's great. And they praise you, and, and that's, your, that's your reward. But if you want the rewards that come from heaven, you cannot have that as your goal. Now, that may happen, right? 
We may hear people pray and, and say, wow, that's great. But if a person has that as a goal, to receive that kind of uh, adulation from the people, they will not receive the true rewards that come from God. And really, that's just true. Prayer reorients us for all the spiritual life. Uh, any human-centered thing, that's what people do. They do it for, for glory. People go play football. People go work for success or get education because they want people to acknowledge them and say, look, you're great. Right? Prayer cannot have that in because prayer is meant to be taken back into all those things and turn those back to God so that all of life is then given to God and, and we seek to do it for his glory. So that's the first thing. That's the hypocrite's prayer. And notice what Jesus said. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let it be the thing that you and God have and get your rewards from God. You know, Jesus doesn't tell us what the rewards would be. But I wonder if at least part of it is the reward that we, we know come to people that people testify to receiving just in prayer itself. You know that old song, Sweet Hour of Prayer? I don't think growing up I had a clue what a sweet hour of prayer. It's like a sweet hour of timeout. <laughs> but what I'd like to say to you is the author of that song had knowledge of the way things really are. Sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare. You understand what the author's saying? I've often been, been delivered from Satan's temptations. And it's very interesting, the wording. By your return, by thy return, in a sweet hour of prayer. You've come back to me as I've met with you, and you've delivered me. Sweet hour of prayer, the joy I feel, the bliss I share of those whose anxious spirits burn with strong desires for your return. With such, I hasten to the place where God, my Savior, shows his face and gladly take my station there and wait for you sweet hour of prayer. See, that's a reward, isn't it? The joy I feel, the bliss I share. We got to learn that. We need, we need Jesus to teach us to pray. The next, the next group here is the pagans. He said, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles or the pagans do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The hypocrites are praying to be seen by people. The pagans are praying to be heard by the gods. They're praying, thinking these unknown gods, might, they might can get their attention. They might can conjure them up. They might can somehow appease them enough where they will make themselves available to them. Using these words, heaping up these phrases. Jesus is saying that's unnecessary. It's like Elijah. Remember the story of Elijah? When there's this, the prophets of Baal are all gathered together and Elijah's there standing against them. And they have basically a contest. And he says, okay, you pray to your God, I'll pray to my God, let's see who's the real God. And so, so the, they, they are, 
are dancing around trying to get their God to do something. And Elijah starts to make fun of them. The prophets of Baal are dancing. They're dancing around. And he says, well, shout louder. <laughs> he said, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he went to the bathroom. Elijah starts saying stuff like this to them. And so they start cutting themselves. And they're dancing around making a scene all day long. They do this. Nothing happens. Elijah steps up, has this altar, and he asks God to come down and let it, and you know what he says? Let it be known today that there is a God in Israel. And just with a few more words, after dousing the thing with water, you know, to remove all doubt, to show the power of God, let it be known today that there is a God in Israel, and bam! The altar's consumed. See, Elijah knew that you didn't need all that stuff to get the living God's attention. The problem with that prayer of the pagans was that they did not know God. But in a similar way, that's the problem with the hypocrite's prayer. They don't really know God either, at least not like they should. And so they're praying, but it's not really God-focused, it's them-focused. So others will see them. Brother Charles and I, Charles Edwards and I, have been going through a, a book on uh, backgrounds for reading the New Testament. And one of the prayers that's uh, in there is it's talking about Greco-Roman religion. It's this ancient, ancient prayer, maybe found on a tablet inscribed or something, discovered by archaeologists, I don't know exactly. But here's what it says. O Queen of Heaven, whether you be bountiful Ceteris or heavenly Venus or Phoebus, or dreaded Proserpina, however you say all these names, by whatever name, with whatever right, in whatever image it is right to invoke you, defend me now. And that's a prayer from antiquity. You know what that is? It's just one example of people who don't know the living God. And they're trying to make something happen. They know there's something out there, and they're trying to make something happen. What a gift it is to be released from that kind of prayer. And I want to take you back. I read by it quickly, but I want to take you back to what Jesus says here. Both when he's talking about the hypocrites and the pagans. He says, you go into the room, you shut the door, and who do you pray to? Your father. Who sees in secret. The pagans, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then we get right down to the next verse, and it says, Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Matthew refers to God as Father 44 times, and here in the Sermon on the Mount, it's more than a dozen times that God is referred to as Father. This seems to be an important idea in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, the, the, I think God's referred to the Father like 170 times in the Gospels total. This was not a common thing before Jesus. Now, the, the idea of God being Father was in, in, in Jewish background, and, and it's there in the Old Testament, but it's not used commonly, almost never in prayer. And then you get the New Testament, and it's just everywhere. It just explodes onto the scene. Why? Because Jesus came, and he brought something 
different or he brought something more fully into people's view. This idea that was in the Old Testament but rarely used, he said, this is how you can think about God. You can think about him as your father. N.T. Wright says that the, the, we could consider titling the Sermon on the Mount what it means to call God Father. That could be a title for the whole sermon, what it means to call God Father. When we pray, we are praying who, as people who know God as Father. Let me make a caveat here, because this, for some of you, this may just be interfering right now. Many people, because of bad experiences with fathers, earthly fathers, have a real hard time with this language. And they think, that calls up something that I don't like being called up when we say Father. And I understand that. And I'm, I'm sorry that that's what you feel. I want to encourage you to give it another shot. Because here's what should happen. A lot of times I'm afraid what happens is we get a bad example in our mind. And then we think God is worse than that. And this is terrible. What should happen is we should get the best examples we can get in our minds. And we should think, God is better than that. <laughs> so I want to urge you, if you've been wounded deeply by a father figure in your past, don't put that on God. Let God be the redemption. Let God be the father you should have had and did not have. That is the role that he would have. Because I guarantee you, he is better. Not just in the good examples you might have. He's better than anything you have ever encountered. He's better than any dad that you've seen your friends have. And you've thought, oh, I wish that was my dad. They are a dim reflection of the beautiful Father that we have in heaven. Let him serve that role. Let him fill that need. Let him heal that wound. Let him be the Father that Jesus knew. And this Jesus who said, if you've seen me, you have seen him. That's what you think of when you say, Father, I'm praying to you now. So that is what we pray, our Father. We pray as part of an ongoing relationship with the Father. We can be sure that Jesus thought about what he was doing when he gave us those terms, when he prayed that way and when he taught us to pray that way. You know, every conversation has a context, right? If, if you're talking to me, you just may be, hey, Luke, you know, we're friends. You go in the courtroom, though, and you try that with the judge, and it's going to be not received that way, right? You say, your honor. Um, if somebody pulls you over on the side of the road, you might want to say, officer so-and-so. <laughs> it might just help you out in that, in that situation. Every different conversation has a context, and that, and that influences our vocabulary that we use given the context that we recognize we are in. When we go to the doctor's office, we say, Dr. So-and-so. What is, what is the context that we have when we come to prayer that Jesus teaches? What is that context? You know what it is? It's a family relationship. And that could have been something so different. Right? Most of the Jewish prayers either at that time or historically, it would have been something like Sovereign Lord or Sovereign King, King of the Universe, maybe even Judge or Ruler. And Jesus could have chosen any of those terms. That's not what he chose. That's not what he filled the Sermon on the Mount with. What he filled it with was Father. 
And when we think about the context for prayer, the context for prayer is we have a family relationship with the creator of the universe. And we start with that. And we say, our Father. It's not just that, though. So, so there's this term, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. You've heard me mention it, probably, that the, that the Christians used for Father. And the word is Abba. Abba. And that was the word that little children, not just little children, it could be used on up into adulthood, but little children used it for their dads. Jesus used that term. In fact, arguably, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and arguably, when he says, our father, maybe decisively even, I I, I only read it in one uh, renowned scholar who says this, but uh, uh, it may just be decisive that when he says, our father, in in the Lord's Prayer, what he's really saying, if if we had his words, it'd be our Abba. Something like our daddy, our dad. And see, it, father language is, is familial, and, and, and it has an intimacy to it already, but this is increasing the intimacy. This is because Jesus knew his father, and he lived from this overwhelming sense of the compassion and love of God. And he said, when you pray, you don't have to stand way off and try to get the words right and, and make sure you've uh, announced yourself right so that you can come in and, and, and say, now, now you hear me. He just says, pray to your father. That's how you go about it. That doesn't mean it might not be useful sometimes to use exalted language that will help your heart rise up to this Father. But generally speaking, you just know you're with your Father. And you pray to Him in that light. This language communicates things like, uh, maybe more, more than this, but it communicates authority. Because the Father would have had authority. Authority in a way maybe just saying, if He just said, pray our friend. Well, that wouldn't quite get it, would it? We need, we need a, a, an understanding of God's authority and his provision. It also communicates his compassion and his love in a way, for example, King would not. It communicates an intimate relationship. And it communicates privileged access. So... My dad, I, I'm going to tell you this, I hesitate to say this because I'm afraid it will seem like maybe it's like um, bragging or something, but a lot of you know this anyway, and, and I don't think these things should be. I think that it's stupid to make these things uh, uh, important. My dad was a CEO of a pretty big company. Um, and uh, like I said, I think it's silly that people act like those distinctions matter. Um, in Christ, we learn they don't. <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you some stories just that uh, illustrate this point for me. When I was, oh, I don't know, maybe... Uh, Maybe early 20s, I had to get a suit for some reason. I took it to a tailor in Monroe, Louisiana, where my dad's company was. And, and this guy started talking to me. And he's like, uh, oh, he's bragging on who he does suits for. And he said, oh, I, I, uh, I did that one over there said, for the big guy at CenturyLink. That's my dad's company. And I said, uh, who are you talking about? He said, the big guy. The big guy. Um, I, I, was like, I, I, th- I may have asked him two or three times to clarify, and he, he was just saying the big guy. He wouldn't give me a name. And he pointed this suit, and it was like, I don't know if it was a plaid or something. I just I was like, 
that doesn't look right. And so, so finally I said, well, you know, um, that's interesting because uh, that's my dad. And that didn't look like something he would wear. <laughs> and this guy, I kid you not, I don't know how he had the ability to do it, but he like turned and moved on and never acknowledged I had said a word. It was just like, we went on. It was completely over. <laughs> One time, uh, when I was uh, probably around 20 years old, uh, uh, it was when the company was still smaller, uh, somewhat smaller, and this other company tried to do what's called a hostile takeover. They tried to, to buy my dad's company. And uh, uh, not my dad's company. He was uh, working for a publicly owned company. But they tried to, to, to purchase the company where he worked, and it was, it was a big deal. I think it was national news at the time, and uh, and they were fighting it off, and he had to travel somewhere and, and do something with it. And I, so I was into I think I, I was going to stay up that night to talk to him when he got home or something. Well, he didn't get home. It was late. So uh, I tried to call him, and I knew my dad would answer my calls. Um, and I didn't get him. And I sat there, and I, I probably called multiple times and didn't get him. And I became convinced, that, well, maybe not convinced, something close to it, uh, that my dad's plane had crashed. I sat there late that night. Of course, you know me with my anxieties. I can go places. But, uh, but I knew that my dad would answer my calls right? because I had a privileged access. And he finally got home. Turns out his phone had died. I thought he had died. <laughs> uh, because I knew that when I call, I have access. Right? I want you to know that Jesus is saying something that's, that's very similar about you to the Heavenly Father. You have access. You really do. And you can go to him and find that he is real. I understand it raises questions about why some prayers aren't answered, why we don't sense it. We need to talk through some things like that, maybe in coming weeks. But the starting point, we need to recognize that God is our Father who says, treat me like a father, talk to me like a father. You don't have to go through loops and you don't have to go through rites to get to me. I am here. I am your Father. You can call on me. I just want you to reflect here on what it would mean to enter more deeply into this relationship with the Abba Father. And imagine, if, if that's correct, that Jesus did teach us to pray, our Abba. That means we're supposed to learn that, right? We're supposed to learn to enter into a relationship with God where we can pray like that. And in fact, it, this gets spread very early uh, across, across the, the world with the early church. Paul has it in two different places in his writings. Look at this. The first one's in Romans. Paul had never met the people in Romans, but he can know that they still have gotten hold of this. Apparently, the early Christians were being inducted into this way of praying. And it was, it was because the Spirit of God was doing something, to let them relate to God in this way. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. That's the context. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father. We cry it out from our hearts, Abba, Father. It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Galatians 4 is the same kind of thing. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba! Father! You're not a slave. You're a child. And if you're a child, your future is really, really good. You're an heir. 
through God. That's our identity. That's what the Spirit of God is making real to us. And this was understood in the early church. Jesus prayed the Abba relationship. We enter into that relationship with him and through him. We are adopted. The Holy Spirit makes us alive. And it's knowing God in that way. Abba, Father. He doesn't say, when you pray, the early church didn't pray by the Spirit, Sovereign Lord, although they could have. Fearsome judge, they could have said that. They didn't say that. What, what they said was, our dear Father, like a child, our daddy. And to learn to pray with Jesus is to learn to pray like this. One of the greatest things that Jesus does for us is he teaches us how to know God. And most clearly in himself, saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is the story of the prodigal son, right? Reorienting our minds. This God who's offended, who's mistreated, who has sinned against the Father. When the son comes back, this shocking thing happens. The Father, instead of putting him through trials and making sure he's repented fully, the Father comes running to him to embrace him and say, come back. That reorients, that reorients the way we're thinking about life with God, doesn't it? Jesus taught us to put ourselves in the position of a child, right? If you're going to be in the kingdom, Jesus said, you must be converted and become like a little child. You know what a little child is? A little child is somebody who needs help. And when we start praying, we start as people who know we are not enough, we're not strong enough, we're not smart enough, we're not spiritual enough, we're not mature enough, we're not good enough. We are children of a father. And I imagine there are some of you in here right now, and you can't really admit that about yourself because you've had it together for too long. And you've thought it's been up to you to make the world work out okay, and your identity has been you are strong enough. You are resourceful enough. You are good enough. And it's killed your prayer life. And what you need to do is repent. And repentance is a joyful thing, you see. You turn around and say, that's all silliness. I have a father. And I'm going to turn to him now. I'm going to pray as a child who needs help. See, when we have this understanding, I'm going to draw this to a close now. When we have this understanding, we can stop trying to sure, make sure we say everything right. Stop rattling off a list of things we think God likes to hear us say. Oh, God, you're omniscient and, and omnipresent and omnibenevolent and, and omnipotent. And, uh, <laughs> And I, I have a really good vocabulary because I'm so spiritual, God. And I, or even, even words that aren't quite so spiritual. But I've got to get through this list of words I say before. No, we just go to God. And let me tell you something that, that could kill your prayer life. If you think you're supposed to pray to God about things that really don't matter to you at all. Take the things that matter to you to God. And he will lead you from there into other things. But go to him with the things that matter to you. Because he is your father. 
And he cares deeply about the things that matter to you. And if you, some things matter to you more than they should, he'll help you work that out. The way to handle that is in conversation with him. We have a father, and he's full of love for little children. This is what Jesus says. You know, if, which of you, you ignorant, silly people, you fathers who are full of sin, which of you, if your child comes to you and says, can I have a fish? We'll give him a snake. You're not that dumb. <laughs> do you think God wants to do something bad to you? Yeah, I understand it raises questions. Like, well, why sometimes do we not get things when we ask? And we have to reflect on that. Like, for example, could it be that sometimes we're asking for a fish and God knows we already have ten fish? We just don't want to clean them. <laughs> right? C.S. Lewis has this whole thing he talks about where if you've got weeds in your garden, you shouldn't necessarily ask God to get them out. Because <laughs> there's domains. He's given that into your domain. You can ask him to be with you and help you, and he will, he will bless you as you engage in that. But he, didn't just, he doesn't just want you to stop being what he's called you to be and taking care of things he gives over into your hands. Right? So we have to ask questions like that. We have to think through things like that. I know there are some hard questions. But, but we have to, before we get into all those details, we have to start with the understanding that's been revealed to us. This is revelation. God is our Father. And He is a good, good Father. And we are children in need. That's how we pray. Dallas Willard, when he's talking about prayer in one of his lectures, I don't remember the exact context. I think he's talking about people not knowing how to pray. He says, he says just find something good and start praying for it. <laughs> just go to your Father for something good. Would you do that as an experiment? Would you just find something good? What happens I'm not talking about praying for things silly just as a test for God. Like, Lord, I want to see a, a new truck show up on my doorstep. Oh, well, okay. You know. I'm talking about what, about what about your friend who's an addict? What about people in this church who need work? What about people you know whose marriages are struggling? Would you just, would you just start and say, I'm going to make it my goal to pray regularly to the Father? That he will intervene for this? What if, what if we all do that all year long? What kind of testimonies might we have at the end of the year? I want to invite you to join in that prayer, knowing your Father. And you see, I'm not going to say much about this right now. Maybe, maybe next week Terry's going to speak. Maybe he'll talk more about it. But uh, it's when we know God is Father that it's very natural then to pray, hallowed be thy name. Because we're asking for something that's from our heart then. We're not saying, do something even though I don't necessarily want it. <laughs> or I don't necessarily understand it. We're saying, you are so great, and you are mine. You're my father, and I want the world to know how great you are. So I say, hallowed be your name. And when we watch the Super Bowl, we say, when all these people are out there getting worked up about the Super Bowl, Father, I'd like for them to know how great your name is. Hallow your name for those people out there right now. You go on vacation and you're walking the streets of some city you're not familiar with. And you walk and you say, hallowed be your name in this place. Let this city come to know how great you are. That's my heart. That's my joy, right? Okay. I encourage you to enter into it more and more deeply. Praise team, would you guys come on up and I'm going I'm to close this out in prayer as you come up. O sovereign Lord, King of the universe,
There's so many ways you could have invited us to come, and they would be appropriate. But this morning, at the invitation of our Lord Jesus, we say our Father. Heal up the Father wounds in this building, Lord, by letting them know how good you are. And we say, our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Amen.